Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm glad that you have tuned in on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the island of Antigua, and I'm sitting behind the broadcast desk in the studio, and sitting across from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. We're going to pick up our topic from last week, which we didn't have time, Pastor didn't have time to complete all of his material that he had prepared. And that topic is the troubles of life. So, Pastor, can you give us a a brief review of what you taught for 90 minutes last week? I'll try to be as brief as possible, but I think we uh, face the reality that problems are a normal part of life and that Christians are not exempted from those problems. We also try to emphasize that um, we don't find the word problem in the Bible itself. And uh, instead of using the word problem, the Bible uses three different words. It uses either testing or temptation or trials. And the reason for that I mention is that the emphasis is on the moral component. What, what happens to us is not something accidental or coincidental, something that is aberrant or something that is strange. Uh, it is part of the matrix of life and is part of the way God deals with us in order to mold us and shape us and to make us and bring us into greater conformity of Christ. The, the fact is that the Bible is a very realistic book. Uh, it never promises you wealth, health, and prosperity. It tells you quite clearly that you're going to have tribulations, you're going to have problems. Uh, it very indicates in, in the very word that is used in relation to believers that um, there are things that need to be dealt with and behavioral changes that need to be addressed and that sometimes these require verbal confrontation as well as uh, doing this thing in a spirit of love. Uh, we talked about the fact that <clears throat> there are four factors in <coughs> involved in the battle that we have in life. There is the divine activity that's going on in our lives. There's a satanic attempt to deceive us. We also mentioned that our circumstances in which we find ourselves, and along with that, we have the human choice. So in this matrix of these four intersecting uh, things that we have, uh, it, out of that that flows all the problems that we have faced at some point in time. Uh, we also mentioned that there's some very good concepts that would help us to give a proper understanding of, of, of problems generally. Uh, we said that we need to understand that there are certain basic Bible principles that are stated in Scripture that would give us insight into our problems. Uh, for example, we talk about um, every temptation comes from three different agents, either the world, the flesh, or the devil. I think we all generally understand that. Uh, 
And then there are, only, uh, there are three avenues that these temptations or these testings come into our own personal lives, the three gates. There is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're not going to elaborate on these matters. We're just stating general Bible principles. But then God has given us three affirmations. He has told us that our problem is not going to be unique. It is common to man. He has told us that God will never test us beyond our limits or our capacity, that he restrains how much we can endure, and he has promised a way of escape. If he doesn't remove the testing or the temptation, he promises a way of escape. And then we also mentioned that God has given to the believer certain aids or helps to help him uh, in dealing with his problems. We talk about the Word of God. We talk about the Son of God who intercedes for us at God's, God's right hand. We talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit where we can crucify the flesh through the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. And then the other one I should have mentioned, I, I did mention, is the people of God. That within the body of Christ, there are believers who've had experiences. There are believers who have studied Scripture. They believe that God is working through. They become agents of change and agents of help. And sometimes we can't solve the problem in ourselves, but God has given to the church a body of wisdom uh, of believers who can normally help us uh, in the area of counseling. I think if we would take those general concepts into mind, I think it would give us a better understanding of why these things happen, how to deal with them, and um, how to actually enter our lives. The other thing that we pointed out very quickly last week is that um, the biblical words that are used to describe our problems, um, the word temptation, it has to do with the solicitation to evil. So anytime you're tempted, uh, go in the wrong direction, do something that's evil, that's a temptation. Now that doesn't come from God. God cannot be tempted with the evil, neither tempted with any man. So why uh, does my Bible then say God tempted a person? Because the word there should be tested. Okay. A different thing altogether. Uh, the, the problem that we have sometimes in Scripture is that one word uh, can mean different things. Like, for example, take the word can. Simple word can. Can mean that I can do something, or can can mean something I have beans in. It all depends on the context. Similar with biblical words, um, that word could be used in different ways in different contexts. The context determines what that word means. Okay. And the, the word for... Um, that is used for temptation in the New Testament, for example, is either parazo or parasmos. And that word can mean three different things. It can mean temptation, where I'm solicited to do evil. This is an act of Satan. It can mean testing, where God is trying to reveal a quality that I have. He's testing to prove that I got the quality. And it can also mean trial, when I'm going to do something physical that is very, very painful. So it all depends on the context in which it is. But the reason why um, it's so important to understand why these words are used you take the word temptation or, or testing or trial, it is very personal. It's not something that just happens accidentally. It is something that's being used in your life uh, to bring out the moral quality and the spiritual state that you're in. That's why I said that the word problem itself is not there. But the whole idea is because these words have a moral connotation. It has to do with your character. It has to do with your response, your reaction. And that's why these words uh, are found in scripture. And then of course briefly we talked about the, the way of escape and uh, hopefully we'll come back uh, to that at some point in time. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that's already come in from Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. People often post images on Facebook like you don't need to waste, it'll say something to the effect of you don't need to waste your time on someone who only wants you around when it fits their needs 
or it might say, surround yourself with people who know your worth. You don't need too many people in your life, just the real ones who appreciate you for exactly who you are. Can a Christian back up or follow these statements, especially when it relates to believers in the church? You know, that might sound like good psychology, to be honest with you. And I think I've mentioned this several times already. The, the problem with the church is that psychology has infiltrated the church through different means. Uh, the Bible doesn't give any warrant for that kind of an attitude. I just surround people who like me or affirm me, et cetera, et cetera. The Bible puts me in the midst of people, and I'm there to be a witness and a testimony. Sure, I've got people who like me, people who affirm me, et cetera, but I've got people who are antagonists who don't like me as well. And I have to reach out to those people. So I don't think the... Um, it sounds good, and uh, I suppose people who are not self-assured and people who are looking for affirmation will, will find that they surround themselves with people who only tell them what they want to hear and make them feel good about themselves. But that's not the purpose why we're here. We're here to be a witness, and God doesn't limit who we witness to or who our testimony uh, we bear testimony to. Our whole purpose in life is to glorify God in every situation, and the ultimate goal is to bring people to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that means... Uh, now, if you're talking from that aspect of evangelism, the type of people that we need to deal with are often people who are not going to be affirming us, who are not going to be pleasant. Uh, we just got to go in the highways and the byways and connect with anybody. But that's not the goal. Um, however, I would say this. If you have been downloaded with a lot of negative thoughts by people that you're moving with and they're just uh, dragging your, your whole spirit down, uh, it would be proper to change that atmosphere and that environment uh, to get, in, get something more affirmative, more positive. But we must not in any way try to withdraw ourselves uh, to the people that we like or the people that, that uh, say nice things about us and ignore the others. Uh, we're supposed to reach all humanity with the gospel and with our testimony and uh, Thing I think we need to realize that God puts us in hard places, uh, and th those places that He put us in, we're there to function, and we're just there to have an influence. So let us not just, um, you know, be ones who are leaning towards people who are favorable towards us. Uh, let us understand our job en encompasses every person, uh, the good, the bad, the indifferent, sinners, the, the publicans, as our Lord in His ministry demonstrated. As I was reading those quotes about only wanting to be around people that are uplifting to you and all, I thought of the book of Proverbs where it talks about the wise man is willing to receive a rebuke, yeah. uh, where the fool just writes it off and kind of turns his back. I kind of think some of these descriptions in some context could describe a fool. Yeah, well, I, I, I am a little bit hesitant because I'm not too sure how to interpret fully what the person is suggesting. Uh, they're suggesting only to um, have people who will uh, kind of butter them up. Is that what they want? Uh, they're afraid of being told something, somebody that they don't like because they're going to say something that would rub them the wrong way. In a case like that, yes. Um, there are times when we need to be confronted. There are times when uh, people that um, uh, will confront us, and we should not avoid that if their motive is correct and we are at fault and we need particular change, God brings people into our lives to help us and we need to recognize that. Sometimes those people who are in our lives to help us, sometimes we rebel against the help that they offer and in so doing, we are actually rejecting the testimony and the, and the counsel that God would offer. But um, our job really is to interact with people, generally speaking. But uh, I can see a situation where everything is negative, 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 negative. Uh, you can have that in, in, in a home, for example, where you are 
being knocked right, left, and center. Uh, that happens very frequently with, with kids, especially with their education. They're not doing well, and they get knocked right, left, and center. Sometimes uh, you need a break from that. You need some people to really uh, help you, to affirm you. So, But um, the answer is not to exclude other people. Our goal as Christians is to reach out to people and try to change and transform lives through a testament, a witness. Remember that we're not responsible for what people do to us. We're responsible for how we react to what they do. And uh, there's biblical ways we should react. And, and God puts in those positions to show those people how you can respond. Pastor, should a Christian treat a saved person different than an unsaved person when it comes to resolving conflict? Well, there's certain guidelines in the Bible that sets out clearly what your brother is an offense between your brother. I would say that those principles still carry over into the the the, uh, the unsafe situation. Uh, it has to do with conflict resolution. There's a conflict, whether it be a brother or not. If you know there's a conflict, I don't think you can violate, you'll be violating the biblical principles if you carry out those principles. Somebody has got done something against me. The Bible says I go to that person and I try to explain to them how it's offended me, how it's affected me. Uh, depending on that person's response, um, how they treat me, I might take another person with me and say, listen, this is a serious problem. I want you to hear the situation. Uh, of course, the other element would be that you would not be able to bring it to the church because that's the third step. If the oh, person doesn't true. hear you bring it to the church. But the, the, way, the reason why you're doing it is because... Um, you know, when things happen, the two people are very antagonistic towards each other. Sometimes you need a mediator, somebody who can go in between and listen and then try to resolve the problem. But I do feel that the principles that are there in Scripture in dealing with brother to brother, I think they can be used to some extent uh, with non, non-Christians because those principles have to do with human relationships. And uh, what better book to give us instructions than the Scriptures themselves? You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and it is a live interactive program. You can call and be put live on the air. So if you have a question or a comment, give us a call. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. Give that to you again as you get your phone in your hand and unlock it. Phone number to be put live on the air is 268 462 If you'd rather not speak live on the air, I understand, and we would love for you to still send your question via WhatsApp or text, and you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Pastor, in your, yes, last week and also in your introduction this evening, you mentioned that God provides a way of escape. Can you elaborate on that? Where should I be looking for it? When will it come? I think I, it's important that we kind of elaborate some more on this one because I think people can misinterpret it and look for the easy way out uh, and consequently um, frustrate what God is trying to work in their lives because they're not prepared to go through any period of time of testing. Uh, we admit that while God promises us that we're not going to have a tr- problem-free life, He does promise that He will make a, a way of escape. The question, of course, is is what is this uh, particular way of escape? I, I want to say uh, that it's not the elimination of the difficulty. That's the first thing I would like to make very, very clear. Um, there's a good biblical example of this. 
Uh, you remember when Mary and Martha had the problem where her, the brother was sick? And you remember that they dispatched a message to Jesus, said, my brother is sick. And of course, the thought was they were hoping he would come on time, heal the boy, solve the problem. But we're told that Jesus stood away for two days and Lazarus died because there was an ultimate purpose. The, the, the way of escape for Mary and Martha, they thought that it would just be, well, he'll rush there, he'll solve the problem, the problem disappear, and that would be the end of the story. But you would notice very carefully that the way of escape that God had a different plan altogether. It was to glorify His Son by resurrecting Lazarus. So it's not the easy way out that that uh, we often should look at the as uh, in terms of um, the way of escape. Um, so the testing experience and removing that uh, is not the way of escape. And God is not obligated to get us out of a situation uh, uh, because we think that's the way God ought to operate. Could I say something else? If God doesn't remove the problem because you're the problem and something you need to change, if he doesn't change the situation, he's changing something in you. And I think that helps you to look at, uh, carefully at what God is doing. Uh, what God promises in terms of helping you to deal with the way of escape is that God promises you help. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that the word way of escape uh, was used of soldiers, uh, sailors, sorry, who when a ship was going through a storm, they had to lighten the ship by throwing things off. That's what it means. That's what the word is used. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 27, verse 18 and 38, when Paul is on his way and uh, in, the, in the ship, and he has a shipwreck. You remember that they came to a point where they had to jettison things and, 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 and throw things overboard? That's the same word that is used here, the way of escape. The idea is that you lighten the situation because you're in a crisis and there are things that need to be thrown overboard and gotten rid of. My point is this. Uh, God dealing with you in the way of escape may very well be that God is showing you that there's something wrong with your lifestyle, something wrong with your response reaction, something that needs to be jettisoned out of your life. Uh, that is the escape route. That's the help that he's bringing you to the point where you can discover uh, that there's something wrong that needs to be dealt with. If you notice in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Nathan, I don't know if you can read that for me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. And I would look at the other one, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I think these verses um, are very specific in terms of what God has promised in regard to his help. But in Hebrews chapter um, 2 and verse 18, it says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So there's a promise that because he's been through all of these experiences, he is able, and the word succor there means to help. He's able to help you. So the way of escape is God looking to Christ as the one who will help you. It's not, not removing your problems because this is the help that you need during this time of, uh, of trial or, te or testing. And then the other interesting verse is uh, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 15, which reads, um, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but with all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly before the grace that we may find, obtain mercy to help. When? 
in time of need, see? So the help comes in, t- here you are, you're dealing with a situation, you're trying to find how to, how to deal with it, you, you need help in dealing with it. Your escape route is to turn to Christ, who will succor you. Your escape route is that at that particular time of need, He gives you favor and grace to be able sometimes to, to even bear it. So it's not necessarily that He's going to remove it. Uh, the whole idea is that, uh, and it may very well be, as I pointed out, that uh, that idea of jettison things, things in your life that need to be cleared up, things that need to be gotten rid of. Uh, so we have to understand that it's more than just removing the difficulty. Uh, it may be removing something in your life, like from the ship. It's going through a storm. You've got a light in it. You've got to throw it overboard. There's something in your life that, your own storm, there's something in your life that needs to be jettisoned, and that's what he's doing in terms of helping you with this way of escape. It's interesting, by the way, that um, if God doesn't change the situation or change the problem, it may very well be that he wants to change you. And there's a good example of this, by the way, in Corinthians chapter 12. You remember when Paul was going to with what he called a thorn in the flesh? And you remember that Paul prayed fervently three times, uh, importunately, that God removed the thorn. You remember that uh, God left the thorn but what God did was to change Paul. Paul started out complaining, but then Paul ended up praising, therefore I will glory in my tribulation. So the circumstance hasn't changed because there's something in Paul that needed to be changed. The other thing is, of course, that in the case of Paul in Corinthians chapter 12, what needed to change at Paul was a very proud person. Lest I be exalted above measure. He just had some tremendous revelations that could not even be uttered, taken to the third heaven. Uh, imagine you given that privilege. The temptation would be to want to boast about these things and talk about them. But he, he did, and, and that is where at that juncture, um, God put this problem in Paul's life, and it was really to uh, really to change not the situation of the thorn in his life, but to change the Apostle Paul so that he would be less proud, less arrogant, and less prone to talk proudly and arrogantly. And he himself said, lest I be exalted above measure. So he had to be restrained. He had to be humbled. He had to be kept under control. And of course, it would be very hard for a man of Paul's achievement uh, to not want to say about these things and give details. He said, I heard things that could not even be uttered. Imagine what it would be to be given that kind of insight. And the temptation was very real to really make a show of this. And God put this thing in, his, in, his, in, his, in, in, uh, in Paul's body to keep Paul. So the situation didn't change even though he prayed, but he changed. So uh, one needs to, be bear, to bear that in mind. The other thing is that Sometimes the way that God, uh, the way of escape, sometimes we've got to flee. That may be the way of escape, especially when it comes to sexual temptations. Uh, Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lust. Uh, uh, we see that in the case of Joseph. Sometimes it's not a time to converse, time to argue, time to have a dialogue, time to discuss whether we should or should not. No, the time is to take up your pants and run. The time is just to don't don't uh, dilly-dally uh, in the situation. The biblical thing is get away from it. That may be the way of escape. Sometimes the way of escape is confrontation. Now what I mean by that, Matthew chapter 18, with a problem. The way to resolve that problem is confrontation. That's the escape route. Sometimes it is that we endure. Uh, we're told again and again that we got to endure hardness. Uh, sometimes we have to be prepared to suffer wrong. 
uh, the Bible makes that very clear. That would be the way of escape. Somebody has done you something or doing something, you just take the wrong. That is not normal. That is not the human way of dealing with it. But uh, for the sake of peace, for the sake of harmony, you assume the wrong, even though you're not the person that wronged. The Bible mentioned that. And then, of course, the way of escape may be to seek counsel, uh, turn to somebody for help. And uh, there are times when you need to fight for your rights. Uh, there may be times when you had to have legal recourse. You said, Pastor, we're talking about. Paul says not to take the, the brother to court. I agree with that. But remember also the time when Paul was put in prison and Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Yeah. He had a legal basis for appealing because he was unjustly mistreated as a Roman citizen. And that was Paul's way of escape. Uh, he appealed to Caesar. And not only that, Paul said, you embarrass me publicly. You can take me out of prison publicly. He was not going to be the mat for people to walk on unnecessarily. No, he's a very humble man, but he knew when to take a stand in that regard. Sometimes the way of escape is surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. Our Lord uh, surrendered in that way. That was his way of the trauma that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, that was relieved when he said, Not my will, but thy will be done. Sometimes there are biblical principles that give us the way of escape. Read um, Corinthians chapter 7, mortal issues. The way of escape in dealing with those mortal issues are clearly outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 17. And uh, the other thing I would say about this whole matter is that one of the ways that we can find how to deal with the issue and the, 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 way, of, the way of health, the way of escape, Sometimes we can study the problem-solving methods that were used in the Bible. Take Acts chapter 6, the problem administration, uh, catering to needs in the church. Uh, In that case, it was the social needs of the church. They have a a complaint between the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews, the widows, and over the social program of the church. Study that very carefully and see exactly how they, how they went about solving that problem. Acts, uh, Exodus chapter 18, Moses is dealing with two million people, and they're lining up in long lines, and Moses is killing himself, trying to counsel everybody. Jethro comes and said, listen, hey, you need to split up this, delegate some responsibility. You handle the hard cases, we handle the soft cases. Then look at Nehemiah um, in terms of his project management that he had. Uh, look at the skill that he used. He sought wisdom and he sought help from God. In chapter 1, he built a bridge between himself and the king. He was a cupbearer, but he needed help from the king, and he, he kept he opened that bridge. Um, he, um, he surveyed the situation. He developed a strategy how to solve the problem. Um, he shared his vision and his plan with the people and motivated them to pursue how God was going to lead. And... Um, he, he kind of dealed and supervised the work, and as the problems occur, he dealt with them uh, as they occur. Look at the Jerusalem Council, uh, Acts chapter 15, where there's a major crisis about the whole question of justification by faith, or as a man saved by faith plus the law, faith plus works. Notice that they acted very quickly. Uh, they faced the problem head on. Uh, they had a closed question uh, discussion. They allowed various parties to express themselves. They appealed to Scripture. They documented the events, and then they shared it with the Gentile churches. The point I'm making here that uh, the different ways that God has of helping us to deal with our problems, we can study biblical examples uh, that are people who are faced with problems and faceless issues and see exactly how they were able to resolve those particular problems. Pastor, you mentioned that Paul prayed, I think it was three times fervently, for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. 
How many times should I be praying for the Lord to remove a thorn in my flesh? I use that phrase loosely before I just accept it and stop praying. Well, the, the thing that we must not miss that Paul only stopped praying when the Lord gave him an answer. Okay. Right. Uh, if, if 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 the Lord had not given Paul an answer after the third request, he would have had a fourth request and a fifth request. So, in the case of Paul, we must not take that as a standard. Well, ask three times, if we don't get an answer. Therefore, the answer is settled. No, we're missing the whole point. As he asked the Lord and interceded and asked God to remove the thorn, he asked him one time, no answer. Second time, no answer. Third time, God answered. That was it for the Apostle Paul. So that settled the score. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. I'm not going to remove your thorn, but I'm going to give you the uh, compensating grace to be able to handle the situation. And as far as Paul was concerned, that settled it. Right? Uh, there are times when we may have to wrestle with God far more times than that. Uh, uh, we, we use the example of Jacob. Uh, resting a whole night with God before he got an answer. Uh, There's no limit. I I think it has to come to the point when uh, the Holy Spirit settles in your mind that I don't need to go any further than that. Or what might surprise you that a verse of Scripture that you're reading or something you're reading, uh, that answer leaps out almost indefinitely in a very unique way. Uh, and, and you're kind of amazed that you, you read that before, you studied it before, you heard it before, but now it has, takes on new meaning. And at that juncture, the Holy Spirit, that, that's your answer. So I don't think it's a limit to be placed on, uh, in those kind of requests. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.59. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program once a week, we are also live on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the the Facebook Live video feed, and you can see what goes on behind the scenes. If you have a question, uh, comment, give us a call. The phone number is one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 768 1454 Pastor, I know I've said this before, and I know I've heard many people say it. I just need to vent. I just need to download on someone. Is that a biblical thing to do? And if so, how do you find the balance between venting to a third party and gossiping and sharing more information than you need to? Um, I would. I would. Uh, no, when you talk about venting, are you talking about expressing emotionally anger? Are you talking about. Yeah, frustration. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, psychology tells you that one of the things that you can do is to take a, a doll and beat a doll or something, take it out on the doll. You know, you've probably heard that <laughs> advice, uh, you know, just take it out. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is that we must always try to have self control. The fruit of the Spirit is self control. Uh, Paul warns us not to let. Uh, the sun go down on our wrath. We are so angry we carry it over one day to the other. This thing that need to be resolved and need to be settled. However, there are times when you need to speak to a person very firmly, uh, depending on the level of your frustration. But the ultimate goal in every case is to try to get the problem resolved. And we've got to be careful about our reaction. Let me say this. Somebody can do you something wrong, and you can react the wrong way and complicate the problem. 
your reaction can be sinful and uh, the person react to you and you react so you've got this spiral that we complicate the problem by by the, by the wrong reaction so I, I don't feel that um, it's proper to, to tell a person, well, let me tell you my mind. Uh, let me just download my line and just blast the person. I don't think that is proper. I think it's proper to be firm and say, listen, what you did was wrong. It's got me very angry. Uh, and there are times, by the way, that when you're dealing with people and your anger begins to boil, that you need something called a timeout. In other words, you realize that if I continue at this pace, it's going to lead to the escalation of the problem. And I might need to say that we need to take a break. Now, I can't go any further with this matter. Let me just recollect my thoughts and get calmed down a little bit, etc., etc., so I'm more easily disposed to deal with the problem. Because sometimes it's not what we say, it's how we say it. And the person reacts to what we say. We might say the right thing, but the, the, the venom in which we, 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 we make that statement, the person is actually responding not to what you say, but more to the venom that is clearly there. And uh, that can actually frustrate the possibility of resolving a problem. What about, let's say that someone by the name of James has hurt me, mm-hmm. and I come to you and I say, Pastor, I've been really hurt by James. I just need to share with you what happened. I just need to let it out, and then I'll feel better. Is that uh, biblical at all? It sounds good, but I, 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 I look, if we follow the biblical model, James offended me. I'm upset. You need to go to James. My first thing for you to say to you, you go to James, you talk to James, right? Uh, you talk to James, and James don't want to listen to you. James blasts you. James blame you for the problem, whatever it is. Again, the biblical model. You get another believer with you, you take that believer with yourself and you go and you confront James. James doesn't want to, I mean, he mistreats both of you, basically. Then the Bible says you bring it to the church. And this is where um, most of what problems that we, we that are caused and the, the problem why they continue to escalate is because we don't follow the biblical model. Honestly, um, very often we don't follow the biblical model. And that's the way God says it should be done. Now, do we think we're wiser than God? Do you think psychologists can be wiser than God? Uh, I think not. And I feel that if we were to start dealing with issues the way the Bible says we should deal with issues, I believe that we should be able to eliminate a lot of our problems. Uh, you take a believer, for example. I did you wrong. You come to me and said, um, David, uh, this is what you've done, and uh, I didn't appreciate you did me wrong. Well, because of my pride or whatever, I, I, I don't accept responsibility. I say, no, you, you caused the problem. So I bring a, another person. Uh, and I, I, I said to him, listen, I'm bringing this person to you because I just want to get this issue. And the next step, if we don't resolve this issue, we go into the church. Now, listen to me. I, I, think, I think people be very, very concerned that it's going to be so public now. Yeah. Right? So to be more inclined, let's settle it between the three of us. Now you've got three people than a church of 100 people or 200 people. I mean, who wants to air the dirty linen in the face of But we don't tell them that. What we do, we go on and we go on to third person and fourth person. But I think if we were to use the biblical model that we will bring this matter to the church and let the church hear it, I think you would get a more, a quicker response than you would normally get if you said, okay, we'll go to the fourth person, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the wisdom God has. You notice that he tries to limit it to a, a very small center 
because he understands the human personality. He understands the human psyche. He understands our ego, how it works. And he knows that we are not inclined to go public with matters, and we are more inclined to deal with things privately. And I think that's the wisdom of what we have in Matthew chapter 18. Pastor, we have two text messages that have come in from a listener. Thank you to the individual who sent them in. First of all, is it possible for two Christians to be unequally yoked? Example, one Christian is actively serving in the church and the other is not. Very interesting question. There's no question about it that this is a reality that is often frequently found within the church, especially within marriage. Some people uh, go into marriage because he's a believer. But that is not the basis of marriage. What type of a believer is he? What is his maturity? So the fact that he is a believer is not grounds to just getting married because the Bible says, marry in the Lord. And there are two there are people that can Christians that can marry that are totally incompatible. Let, let me use a simple illustration that might seem weird to mention. For example, and I want to go to extremes now, okay? Here I am a lawyer, and I meet a person in the church who is a Christian, but she's a janitor. No, she's a Christian. I want to say there's so much disconnect there in levels of intelligence, levels of uh, I mean, if you're a person that likes to talk and like to deal with legal issues and wants somebody to converse with, not if you want somebody to just jump into bed with you, jump into anybody, but that's not what life is. Yeah. It's a very small part of life. You can't just say because the person is a Christian, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Uh, you take another example. You take uh, uh, two Caribbean people. You take somebody from, oh, St. Lucia, somebody from, say, um, Barbados. Just an example. There's a lot of differences between those people. The culture is different. Food is different. Taste is different. Uh, so even though we're Caribbean people, there are things that are unique to those. Now, those are things that people have to look at when you are going to counsel people in marriage. Well, we, we, we're Christians, so we'll make it. Okay, take people who come from two different backgrounds now. One come from a very wealthy background. One come from a very poor background. Uh, you take people who a person comes from a structured home where everything's in order. Um, they expect a certain level of, of, of um, take take a simple thing of uh, meals and breakfast. They they they're accustomed to something of a very high standard. Another person who has come in a situation where they're not accustomed to what she can't fix what the other person wants. These are not issues to be ignored. The fact that we are Christians, therefore it doesn't matter. Or you take, uh, as, as use an example, you take a person who is actively involved in church. you got another person who they're just there to warm the seat. They are faithful. They will come. They, they wouldn't do anything. Um, the other person, I mean, that's a drag. Yeah. That's a drag, right? So, you know, because we are Christians, uh, it doesn't mean that automatically we ignore other factors. Look, you've got you got good Christians, you've got bad Christians. You've got energetic Christians, you've got lazy Christians. You've got intelligent Christians, you've got backward Christians. There's quite a variety that you've got there. And uh, there can be incompatibility even though we're Christians. So uh, I think people can be unequally yoked, especially within a relationship, especially with marriage. And I would suggest to people who are not married and who are Christians, if you are trying to decide to marry, let me give you a little bit of counsel here. Don't go to the pastor and say, you want to counsel, you already made it in your mind. If you're coming for counseling to a pastor about marriage and you already made up your mind and you've already given the invitations, you've already, what's the purpose? 
What's the purpose? Are you, are you coming to find out, uh, you know, is, is, is it passive from the perspective of your counselor? Do you really think that this marriage is going to work? But if you already made up your mind, it doesn't matter what the pastor tells you. You just want to be endorsed. And I think that's one of the major things, one of the major problems that people come for counseling. They come after they've made up their mind. They've already promised marriage. They've already already got the everything laid out. And then they say, no, we need eight uh, hours of counseling. I think that's a mistake. If you really want uh, counseling, uh, you come to the past, you're interested in this person, you think there's a possible mate for you, and you want his biblical advice and counsel, then after you've looked at the situation, then you can say, you know what, here are the things I'm concerned about, and um, I even feel that you could make it. Or not. By the way, I, I must say this to those who are listening, I do not marry people that I don't think is going to make it. Um, if I don't feel that this person, this couple can make it, I, I don't marry the people because I'm not the only person who can marry people. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not in the game of chalking how many people I married. I'm the, in the, in the game, uh, not the game, I'm in the concern about how successful that marriage can be. So uh, I can turn down I, uh, and, and I can approve, but um, I, I do what in my judgment and, and what is biblical and what I think is sound and what I think is reasonable from my experience. And I share uh, reality and truth with you. If you get offended, I can't help. The offense is going to come. But I'm not going to allow you to coerce me into um, doing your marriage because you've made a decision when I can see very clearly that this can't last. It's not going to last. There's so many factors here that not even looked at. Um, that's my approach to the whole matter. You mentioned a number of things to consider there if you are looking to marry someone. But what about if you're already married to someone and you realize, wait a minute, I'm very active in church and they are not at all interested in church, even though they from would claim to be a believer. What advice would you give? Well, once you're married, you're married. I would like to state that. Uh, marriage is a vows before God. You've committed those vows before God. And by the way, unsaved people who uh, are married as well, okay? So it's not just Christians that are married. You make a vow before God, uh, and God intends that marriage t- to last. It's, it's permanent. Um, I, I would say this. If you know you've made a mistake in, in your marriage, and, and this some people realize this afterwards, You've got to accept the responsibility for your decision, and you have to do whatever you can to make that marriage work. So you have to start working on the marriage itself. And that may require, by the way, um, some counseling. Um, And I am convinced, and I've said this on the radio before, and it's worth saying, if you've got two genuine, authentic people who are Christians, uh, even though you've made mistakes, uh, provided that both of you want to do God's will and want to follow God's word and instruction and, and the principles in God's word, uh, it will bring about change and transformation of your life. As I mentioned uh, on another occasion, a lot of times our feelings get in the way, but if we begin to change our behavior and change our attitude, feelings can be transformed. So if you're angry that you feel that you've made a mistake or something has happened, uh, you can't work on those feelings directly. You, you work on those feelings by working on your behavior and working on your attitude. And sometimes your attitude changes and your behavior changes as the other partner changes. So that person needs to be, be guided into what changes are needed in his life, what attitudes are needed to help you to progress away where your, 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 your feelings can change. 
Another text message that has come in from Antigua. What role does sexual attraction and desirability play in Christian courtship? Well, I, I, I would be very surprised if anybody marries a person that they're not sexually attracted to. I mean, we unless we close our eyes, and well, we have eyes to be able to, to look at uh, who we've got. So we just can't marry because the person has a good character, they can sing well, they know their Bible, uh, they seem to be very submissive. All of those are excellent qualities, but there must be something attractive about the person uh, unless you are so cold that you're a block of ice and uh, you're not living in the real world, you're burying head in the sand and you, you're so spiritual that you can't see that they're earthly factors. Uh, I do think that it plays a part in every uh, marriage and I think people are physically attracted to each other as well as spiritual attraction but we can't ignore the physical part of the Christian life. You know for years the church made sex something that was horrible and something that they hardly ever spoke about it. And that has been detrimental to the Christian movement because where people got the information from was under the street lights, meeting with the guys. Parents were afraid to give their children sexual uh, education. They left it to the schools. And look where it has led us. And that came about mainly because uh, there was a sense of shame when you talk about this thing. You shouldn't deal with it publicly. The Bible is very, very clear on this. Read the book of Proverbs, for example, and it will shock you the kind of romantic language that is used there, sometimes very erotic, not even uh, very, very... But the point I'm making here is that there has to be some attraction. And to ignore physical attraction and secular attraction, I think it may very well end up just repeating Bible verses but living in misery. So there is an element uh, that's important as far as uh, dating a person as well. The person should be attractive. You end up being like Jacob and Leah rather than Jacob and Rachel. <laughs> well said, well said. <laughs> well said. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? Maybe it's a hard question that was uh, put to you at work or on the bus today, and you're not really sure how to answer it. Maybe it's a question about life. Maybe it's a question about what the Bible says. Give us a call, and the phone number is one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, can you expound a little bit on why would God allow difficulties or problems in my life? I think last week we kind of hinted on this matter when we turned to the experience of Israel in the wilderness, uh, especially in the book of uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 8 where... Um, Moses is reciting the events that took place uh, during the wilderness journey. And we all know that when you read the book of Numbers and we looked at the experiences that they had, similar experience to us, they, they got discouraged in the way, we get discouraged in the way. There are times when they run out of water and they run out of food. Uh, there are times when uh, people attack them, etc., etc. I mean, these are common things that happen to all of us because we are on our journey as well. But what is fascinating that some of those events uh, seem to be coincidental. Some of them just happen to be 
uh, incidents that occurred as they were traveling, as though there was no purpose to it. And then when we come to the Deuteronomy, and uh, God begins to deal with Moses and tell the people exactly what he was doing, uh, it, it, it's very, very clear that God had a purpose. And in Deuteronomy, uh, God said to them he had four purposes. Number one, he was to humble them. Number two, was to prove them. That is to test them. Number three, it was to know what was in their heart and to test whether or not to be obedient. And then he said, I want to teach you uh, to live by my word and not by bread alone. And the other one is, he said, I wanted to chasten you. That is to discipline you. So to humble you, to prove you, to teach you, and to discipline you are four of the purposes God said that everything that happened to you was there. And then he told them what he was trying to accomplish uh, and he said he wanted three things he wanted to accomplish. Number one, he wanted to keep his word. Number two, to walk in his ways. And number three, he wanted to have a reverential fear of him. So uh, when you look at th- that, uh, those events in the Old Testament, and clearly God had a divine purpose, uh, by parallel, when we come to the contemporary Christian, and he's going to uh, his own uh, situation, his own wilderness journey, going on to the promised land of heaven, as, as it were, uh, clearly, uh, God has a purpose as well in these matters. So, uh, when you go into the Bible, you try to cull from the Bible uh, some divine purposes of why things happen in our lives. I just want to uh, share a few with you for just a moment. Um, the, the first one is that we talked about is the matter that to humble us. There's no question about us that we can get beyond our size. We mm. need to be cut down to a level where God can deal with us. Sometimes God has to last the poison of pride from us. It is there, and it leads to self-conceit. It leads to braggadocio. And sometimes it leads to us feeling more important than we should. And as Paul says, we get exalted above measure. Uh, maybe we've had success somewhere that somebody had failure, and we're tempted to boast, and we're tempted to make comparisons. And uh, God puts things in our lives to humble us. Uh, you remember Paul's thorn? The word thorn, by the way, is equivalent to taking a stake and, and, and ramming it right to a person. The idea is pain, whatever it is. And then Paul said it was a buffet. The word buffet means to, to give head blows. Right? So whatever was in Paul's life, it was designed uh, to keep Paul humble because if Paul was not humble, Paul could not be useful. God resisted the proud, but God gave us grace to the humble. And what Paul needed above everything was a servant's heart so that he can become a servant leader. And uh, I would say to you sometimes that sometimes we get too big for our shoes, and God has to deal with us, and uh, some of the flab of our pride needs to be pared off, and he brings these things into our lives. I think that Paul is a good example. The other thing I would suggest to you that God does is that God wants to make us dependent upon Him. And in the wilderness journey, uh, caring for two million people, uh, Moses was not adequate to do that. And think about that for just a moment. Two million people in the wilderness, uh, there are no planted trees, there are no homes, there are no houses. Uh, All that happened to Israel was designed to create this whole matter of dependence. Uh, they had to depend on food, for water, for clothing, for protection, for guidance, for leadership. All of that they had to look to God for. And uh, our Lord told us himself, centuries later, without me, you can do nothing. And so he brings things in our lives uh, to help us to depend upon 
Him. In Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 8 to 11. Can you read that for me for just a moment, please? Second Corinthians. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 8 to 12, 8 to 11. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse, verse 8, to 11. 8 to 11. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch as we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. That's a classic example of what Paul went through the point where Paul actually think it was a, a death experience. But why was that? That we would not depend upon ourselves, but that we would depend upon God, basically. And that's why that event in Paul's life was occurring. Uh, so, um, when you get into difficult straits, you begin to refocus your life, and you begin to understand that um, if God doesn't help you in that situation, there's no way out, and there's no way you can handle it. And so you're forced to depend upon God, which you would not normally have done, except you found in a situation you can't handle. A classic example of what Paul did there. Right? Want me to continue? Yes, please. We finish up. Yeah. Uh, verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And verse 11, Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks many be given, may be given by many on our behalf. The other thing there is that notice that because God delivered him in that incident, He's looking at the future, and he said, "Who will, who we trust, will deliver again." So he's he's learned to depend on that 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 particular uh, situation. Now the other situation he's going to face in life, he's turning to God in dependence upon God. A third reason, of course, is that God uh, uses these problems to educate and to train us. Uh, we must never stop learning, and life is an ongoing training program. And the biblical word for this, of course, God's educational program is discipline and chastisement. And uh, it is very, very clear that God uh, uses these things to instruct us and provide opportunities for us to learn uh, obedience. Uh, another interesting verse, by the way, is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Um, I don't know if you can just hurriedly find that verse, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Almost there. This has to do with Christ and is a fascinating uh, verse in itself. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Yeah, uh, and that's referring to Christ himself, that it is still the experiences that he had that he learned obedience. Now, it doesn't mean that he was not obedient, but he learned the price of being obedient. If you were to read other commentaries, that's, that's the emphasis, that he, he learned what what obedience entails, and sometimes uh, what it entails is that you endure the suffering in order to do God's will. He learned that through his, his earthly ex- experience. So it's a teaching instruction. Sometimes all that we know is theory. Uh, we never know practice. But when we learn truth through experience, uh, we're able to speak with authority that we didn't have before, and it becomes something that we, as a learning process. Uh, fourth reason that God sometimes will um, use trials in our lives is to break us and break the old habitual patterns 
that we have. An example of that is if you read the verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, uh, that's a verse that indicates that suffering is used in our lives for uh, divine purposes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm, ourse- arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he hath suffered in the flesh. For he, so he that suffered in the flesh, huh? hath ceased from sin. Yeah. You notice there that the application is that Christ suffered and the person who goes through some kind of suffering has ceased from sin. It has caused the habit of sin to be broken off. Mm-hmm. That's the application, right? Uh, but what, what causes a person to break off from sinful habits or sinful patterns is the suffering uh, that is emphasized there in that particular passage. And sometimes it's an illness that we have to go through Appeal that, and that the things that we are not willing to surrender, not willing to give up, some sinful habit we have, some sinful behavior, some some pattern, some addiction, is only through suffering. Sometimes that those things are actually shed out of our lives, and it's not the only way. But sometimes it's a drastic way that it, it is done. So sometimes problems will break our habits, or sinful patterns that we have. Um, sometimes problem motivate us. Uh, to real learning. And uh, what I mean by that is, if you look at Psalms 19, 119, uh, you'll find that David makes a statement again and again that it was good for him to be afflicted, that he may learn God's law. Uh, for, uh, for Psalm 119, verse 67, 71, and 75. Could you read that, please? 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Yeah, notice that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. It's only when the affliction came into my life, I now learn the value of following God's word and following God's way. But before I did that, and the affliction came, I pretty much ignored what was there. And read verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Again, That's again. That's not natural. <laughs> it's not natural, but again, when you begin to understand the spiritual role and the moral role of things in your life, and you come to... That's why we need to study the Scriptures, to see what is God doing uh, in my life? What is God trying to accomplish? David is making it very, very clear that if I didn't, these things happen in my life, the trouble, I wouldn't even follow your law, mm-hmm. right? So it's a divine purpose, and uh, it, it help us to really want to learn now, to follow in God's ways. It's the harsh way of learning. We should learn by the example of others and the mistakes of others, but sometimes we have to go through certain experiences ourselves to really value what God has said and the wisdom of following in His ways. That's what David said. Uh, another um, important aspect is that God sometimes uses these things in our lives, uh, problems in our lives, to train us so that we may be able to help others. Look at Second Corinthians chapter one and verse three and four, uh, Brother Nathan, and just read that for the those who are listening, please. Second Corinthians chapter one, three and four. Yes, please. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now here it is. I'm going through some problems, very difficult problems. 
God comes in and God helps me to deal with that problem. He comforts me. No, that comfort is not just self-centered. It's not just about me. God is using the experience in my life to be able to help somebody. So the comfort I get from God in that tribulation, that experience, I can now share with that person to help that person handle their own situation. Uh, That's the marvel of what God is doing. If we just take these things as random and haphazard and there's no meaning or purpose to what is happening to us, we can become disillusioned. We can become disheartened. But when we begin to understand that God is using this to, to teach us something, to comfort us so that we'll be able to help somebody in the future, Uh, these things now begin to take on a completely different dimension and we begin to look at these things quite differently. Pastor, I've heard it said that God doesn't waste experiences on us. Every experience that he puts us through is to prepare us for a future ministry opportunity. Would you agree with that? I would I would validate that and I would uh, endorse that. Um, may I just say this? Uh, this is why when I'm dealing with husbands and wives who are having marital problems, one of the big things that I say to them again and again, I said, you know what? It'd be a beautiful thing if I if this marriage that is going through so much trouble can turn out to something that is so extraordinary that I, a pastor, can refer people to you. Because the dilemma that we have today is that when people go through their problems, they want to jump ship too fast. They don't work through their problems. So while I can lecture and I can say to people, this is what the Bible says, there's nothing like an example who have taken the Bible principles, applied it to their marriage, worked their marriage, make it a success. And now that gives me an opportunity to have an, an icon, uh, an example that I can say to people, listen, I can give you all the counsel in the world, but I want to give you a, a flesh and li- life of, uh, a flesh and blood example, and I want you to go and talk to so-and-so. They've been through this issue. They've dealt with this issue, and look what their marriage has become. They can help you. I think I try to encourage people to try to see problems from that perspective. It's not just about you. It's about how God can transform you and use you so that you can benefit others and minister. I tell them sometimes that um, it can create a ministry for them if they can just trust God and work on their problems. Pastor, we have a question that's coming from a listener. How can a Christian differentiate between the suffering for Christ and suffering because of disobedience? Well, uh, if you're going through something, uh, and uh, it is clearly because you have uh, you're doing something for the Lord, whatever. T- take, um, can use any example. I think it has to do with the, the motive. It has to do with the, the, the rationale behind what is happening. Um, I'm trying to think of an example right off the bat that would give an example. I mean, I can take witnessing, for example. Um, I can be persecuted for witnessing. I'm going out there and sharing the gospel and people are mistreating me. Doors are being slammed in my face. People are saying negative things. Uh, Why don't you give me $5 instead of a track? Uh, You know, so many things could happen to you when you witness. That is suffering for Christ. That is suffering for the cause of Christ. But uh, let's suppose I go down and I do something. Uh, Maybe I, I drink alcohol. Uh, I'm suffering as a result of my alcoholic habit, but I'm not suffering for Christ. I'm going against a a biblical principle that uh, strong drink is a mocker. 
and you don't give it to princes, you don't give it to priests. Uh, so in that case, I'm suffering. I'm not suffering for Christ in that case. The other case, I'm suffering for Christ. I think it's an example. It all has to do with uh, the motive and the purpose behind what is happening in your life. If you're doing something for the Lord and there are negative consequences and there's a backlash that is causing you pain, well, that's suffering for Christ. If you're doing something quite stupid and quite silly, uh, and you you say you're suffering for Christ. Uh, um, you need to. I, I think that uh, you need to wise up and understand that um, it has to do with what's the purpose and the motive behind it. Are there any other biblical reasons that you want to draw to our attention as to why God would allow trouble? Well, the other thing is that sometimes He uses the problem to develop our character. There are several verses in the Scripture that teach us that problems are designed to make the believer stronger and to develop his character. For example, James talks about um, if you are going to a trial to ask for wisdom. Yeah, James right? one five. And then he says, "Let let 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 um, let's uh, let's trials have their patience." Okay, so that that trial is going to produce patience in your life. Uh, Romans chapter five. Uh, gives you a whole category there that tribulation works with patience, patience works with experience, experience works with hope. Notice that one leads, it's like a step. One, tribulation, patience, patience, uh, uh, hope, and uh, make it not to be ashamed. There's an order there. You, you, if you want one, you go to one to get the other. Uh, sometimes that's exactly what is happening. You're much wiser sometimes having gone to a trial than you were before you had the trial. Uh, so that's what God is going to be using as well to develop your character. And then, of course, another reason he does it is to test your faith. Uh, you remember what he told the Israelites in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8? I want to prove what was in your heart. See, I'm putting you through this experience to see really into, are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe in me? Are you going to put faith? Are you going to obey me? Or when these things come, uh, the real, what's really in your heart is going to come out. Uh, that is something that we need to uh, be, 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 be speaking about. And Peter, in First Peter, uh, could you look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7? It talks about reasons for trials there in First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. First Peter 1, verse 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though for now, now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul, uh, Peter's using an analogy. You know, when you take gold from the uh, earth, it has impurities with it. You put it through a fire crucible, and those impurities rise to the surface. You remove that so that the gold really, uh, you get pure gold. Peter is saying that's the way it is with your faith. Sometimes our faith is mixed with um, impurities, and God tests our faith so that that, trial, that fiery trial actually purifies our faith and makes our faith stronger. Uh, so clearly, um, sometimes God used that to test obedience and to de uh, and de demonstrate the genius of faith. And of course, uh, obedience also gives uh, evidence of our genuine love. So there is that, that, that purpose in trying to uh, help our faith. And then another thing I would suggest to you that God brings problems in our lives that we may be able to establish uh, priorities. Um, I can think of examples, um, the early church, for example, they have a massive problem in Acts chapter 6. 
uh, we talked about that uh, early in the program, uh, where you've got the only so much time, only so much resources, and only so much personnel, and they're trying to meet the social needs of the church in terms of the Grecian Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, and they're having problems with the serving tables, as it were, meeting the needs. And you remember what the apostles said? They came together, we will give ourselves the prayer and the word. We will farm out this responsibility and delegate it to these other people, but we will concentrate. Uh, I think that that helps you to establish. Sometimes problems help you to establish uh, priorities in your life. Uh, and I, I do feel that um, going through a near-death experience. I've had people who said that. I remember when my wife's uh, daughter died at 39, and she came back after been with her daughter for six months, et cetera, et cetera, and her daughter had died, et cetera, et cetera. I remember something she told me that I have never forgotten. She said, Dave, I've learned from this experience one thing, that the most important thing in life are relationships. Hmm. Never forget that. Never forget that. But that's what she learned out of that experience of death. And there are many people who have come very close to some fatal uh, um, accident or some um, some near-death experience who come out of that and realize that the things that were important to them before are no longer important because they've really, for the first time, it is crystallized before them that the most important thing is that they're going out to meet God someday and they ought to prepare to meet that God. And sometimes that can only be taught uh, through these kind of experiences that we establish priorities in life in that regard. And then the other thing I would say quickly is that um, God brings these things in our lives to demonstrate His love, His power, and His goodness. Uh, when Israel was going through all of these trials, uh, God at every juncture, when they wanted water, He provided water, sometimes in the most miraculous way. Um, when they wanted food, He sent quails. I know they abused it in the, in, the, in the process, and God had to judge them. But what a, what, a, what a great, wonderful God who demonstrates His power and His goodness and love that when we are at a point of need, He comes in and shows us very clearly that He is a God that cares for us and loves us enough. So these trials sometimes in our lives is to show us God's love. At first, we don't see it. But as we go through the experience and we begin to see how God is working, it becomes clear to us uh, after it's all over, the marvelous love and grace and power of God in helping us in this whole matter. Those are basically ten reasons that I, uh, ten causes, or uh, if you want to put them, that um, the Lord will bring these kind of things in our life. There are others, but I think that helps us summarize uh, some reasons. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time on this Tuesday evening is eight forty. We, the name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live call-in program. If you have a question that you would like answered, go ahead and call us. The phone number is one 462 Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 782 1454. Let me just take this opportunity to thank you for joining us on this Tuesday evening. And let me encourage you when was the last time that you invited someone else or encouraged someone else to tune into That's Truth? 
Go ahead, whether it's tonight or whether it's this week in preparation for next Tuesday evening, go ahead and be encouraging others in your workplace, whether they're believers or not, to be tuning into this program. They don't even have to be in the Eastern Caribbean. They can listen online anywhere in the world. All they need is the Internet. Go to www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor, I know last week you went through... And I have them jotted down here, I don't know, maybe eight or nine steps of solving problems. And there was so much information there. Can you expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think I needed to do that. I, I know I raced through it, and um, I'm glad you gave me a chance to just sh- sh- um, develop it and expand on it somewhat. Um, let me just quickly go through them again. Um, uh, and I want to give the reasons why it is so important to, to kind of deal with them in, in, in the sequence and the order in which we've given them. The first one was to set a time and a place for discussion. And I hope people could see a reason for that. Um, I, I would say to wives, the biggest mistake that a lot of wives make is that they want to discuss problems when it's time to go to bed. I don't know a man on planet Earth that wants to be downloaded with problems at that point in time. Mm-hmm. It's an inappropriate time. But uh, women feel that's the only t- place they have control, so therefore um, uh, they bring up these issues, and it, it's a, just a turn-off, okay? It's just a turn-off. And that's why I think setting the time is so important. And then sometimes the problem is far more deep than we make it. It's not something to be slighted in just a quick five-minute meeting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on the depth of the problem and the extent of the problem and the nature of the problem, it requires some time, and that's why you should set aside some time. And then the place. Uh, there are times even in the home you can't discuss a problem because the children are there. Uh, sometimes it might get a little bit heated and they might think uh, might have a wrong opinion of what is happening or they might just have a negative opinion and never get a reaction to mommy or daddy depending on if they raise their voice or lower their voice uh, sometimes uh, your neighbor uh, you're Christian. Sometimes you can get heated. And a neighbor doesn't have a clue, but they're just waiting for an opportunity to, to point some finger at the Christian. You see, there's Christians. They've got their problems. They can't solve their problems. That's why it's important for you to have a time and a place uh, that you can actually spend some time and you have some kind of privacy. Uh, I, I don't know... Um, I don't know anybody who likes to air their problems where they think other people can hear them. I, I don't think that is proper, and that's why I think we need to emphasize a set time and a set place that you can immediately agree on. The other thing is that I think is crucial is try to define what the problem is. You know, you can be talking about something and you talk two different things, or dealing with an aspect that the person is not even thinking about, and that is why you need to get some clarity on the matter so that you are addressing your energies and your time and your mind power uh, to the, the the problem. So try to define the problem as specifically as possible. Make sure that you and the person are having the same interpretation of what the problem really is. Uh, I don't have to tell you that if you're speaking on two different issues and you th- and you're thinking that um, they're common and they're not you'll be dealing with matters that you can only end up in confrontation so just try to get that whole matter defined the other thing is in every problem there are at least two people involved in every single problem uh, and this is where um, I, we suggested that if you're dealing with a problem see what 
admit which what, what your part was in creating the problem or contributing to the escalation of the problem. See, whether that you reacted wrong or you misinterpreted what the person said, or you said something you should not say, or you displayed an attitude you should not have displayed, uh, that helps. Uh, to, to help resolve the issue because now we are both people of, who have feet of clay and we all got our own foibles and our own idiosyncrasies and we are admitting that we are part of the problem. It's not a one-sided problem. You will ever hardly ever find a problem where it is just a one-sided problem. There are always elements involved and that's why it's crucial that each partner take responsibility for their part. Then the other thing I, I, I suggested is, uh, okay, you've dealt with this problem before, maybe dealt with it three or four times before, but the problem is still unresolved. So review the attempts that you made to resolve the problem and try to decipher why we were not successful. Did we have the wrong approach? Did we turn to the wrong person? Uh, did we not, uh, do, do, you know, are we too proud to admit? What's the whole issue there? See if you can list the problem, the way you try to solve the problem, and try to decipher why you think it didn't work. Because it it doesn't make sense repeating the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again. You're not going anywhere. Um, you're just wasting time, and sometimes there's more 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 um, lightning than than than, than, than um, enlightenment really. The other thing we talked about is the need that, okay, this didn't work. Now, what's our new approach? How are we going to approach it? Now, because there are two people involved, or maybe three people involved, you just would like to get from each individual uh, how they see the situation and what, how they perceive the solution to the problem. So we call it brainstorming. But it's basically allowing the wife to say what she wants to say or the person that you're dealing with wants to say. And then you yourself are given an opportunity if the third party is there. The whole idea is to, to speak, let them speak. Don't criticize what they're saying. Um, let them make their suggestions. And don't judge whether this is stupid or foolish or this doesn't make any sense, whatever it is. Just let them cite the different things, etc. Because you're coming now to review those things to decide which of these uh, can be used to help resolve the problem. And that brings us to number six, where now you look at the things that have been suggested, the solutions that have been offered, you begin to discuss them, you begin to evaluate them for possible solutions, and in particular, you try to look at them as objectively as possible, and you are trying to find what biblical principle uh, apply to these things you're trying to use to help to resolve the issue. Because if you're a Christian, there is a biblical solution to your problem. Uh, God's Word is complete, it is sufficient, and there is something that relates to that problem, there's some biblical bearing. So now you begin to see which of these have a biblical bearing on it. If you found that uh, particular basis, then you be, number seven, you agree on the solution and to try the solution. So you're going to put this thing in place and you're going to try to operate on it. And uh, it, by the way, it takes about it takes a while. You just can't try it for one day. It doesn't work, you, and, and then you just give up on it. Um, if it's a, a change in personality, if a change of some major habit, it's going to take you at least six weeks. I repeat, it's going to take you at least six weeks. So if you want a quick fix, you've come to the wrong person. You've come to the wrong place. Human nature is not like that. Uh, by the way, that's why the word fought in the Bible 
is, 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 is the extent that it takes 40 days, whatever it is. I used to wonder why 40 is such a unique number. And then I realized that you, you think about it for just a moment. Uh, six, six is a what? 36, 36, right? Yeah, 7 and, is 42. Yeah, that, that's where I, I didn't understand there was a principle there, but then the psychologists uh, have discovered that it actually takes about six weeks to break a habit and to, to change something that is really uh, problematic. So you're going to have to work on it for a period of time. So agree on the solution and work through the solution. And then um, decide which part of the solution that I'm responsible for. If it's a husband and a wife and you're trying to solve a problem, you always have to give assignments to the wife and to the husband. It's not a one-sided thing. Uh, if Both people must now start to act and, and, and use the language that the partner uh, feels loved. And so when you're dealing with problems where there seem to be uh, disaffection within the, the, the marriage and, and issues like that, you try to find out the, the language that the person speaks. And when I say that, I mean the love language. What makes your partner feel loved? What makes your partner feel respected? And normally when I'm dealing with a husband and a wife situation, I try to find out what her language is that she feels makes her feel loved. For the man, I try to find out what makes him feel respected and appreciated. And once I know what the key to it, then the assignment is normally based on him doing something to make her feel loved and she doing something. And the strange thing about it, as I said on the radio, as the partners begin to meet those needs, the love need, the respect need, and the appreciation need, something transformative happen because as behavior change and attitude change feelings begin to change and transformation begins to happen and then after you've done that set some time uh, to discuss the progress uh, and to see where you've gone from there and see how you're making and as you are successful give each other a little reward along the way sometime you might be going out for a meal Sometimes it might be, okay, you rest today, I'll clean the house. Uh, sim- simple rewards for, as you make progress, you do simple rewards. You know, it, it sounds, um, all I'm saying is that if you try it, uh, you'll find that it'll work. Uh, and I'm recommending that uh, this be used. And I can't think of a problem that you can take these particular principles and apply it to. So it's one of the things that I'm recommending. Pastor, we have a follow-up question to the earlier question about suffering for Christ. Mm -hmm. There are times that the unsaved person is suffering because of sin, and they are in denial of it and conclude that they are suffering for Christ. As a Christian, how should one share and advise that individual without being misunderstood or sounding judgmental? Well, you're dealing with an unsaved person, and you're going to have to be extremely sensitive. I've had uh, unsaved people who, when you, when you talk to you, that God is blessing them this and God is blessing them that and so on and so forth. And sometimes what they concede to be a blessing to them, to my mind, is a detriment. Uh, and you've got to be very, very careful with those type of people. You're not dealing with a Christian and you don't want to uh, offend them. I think, to a great extent, it depends on your relationship with the person. Um, if you have a very, very close relationship, there are things that you can share with a person that they would not feel offensive, especially if you're, you're, you're a good friend. Um, that would be the key to me. Uh, the key to me would be how, what is my relationship with that person? I would, mo- I would try to focus 
on improving my relation with that person with the goal that I would have greater freedom and liberty to point out things to them that I could not do at a certain level. That is what I would concentrate on. You might be tempted to tackle it immediately. My recommendation for you is to build a closer relationship to the point where you can share confidences, uh, uh, to the point where, like, you know, you've got a very good friend, uh, he can tell you some things that another guy can't tell you, and you're not going to be, you're not going to be pleased with it, let's face it. But you're not going to be offended by it because you think you has he, he has your best interest at heart. I think if you create that kind of relationship with a person where they believe that you honestly have their best interest at heart, at that juncture, then I think you could say to the person, "Look, we're good friends. Um, uh, I I don't really want to offend you uh, in regard to, but could I share something with you and um, share it with them? Share it with them." And say, you know, let them know I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm not trying to be God in your life. Uh, but I do feel that you should look at it from this angle as well because it might have a different perspective. But uh, my key thing here is build a relationship to the point where uh, the person knows that you have their best interest at heart. And I think if you go from that stage, it is possible to say things that are might be hurtful to a, a, a stranger, but would not be hurtful to a friend. Remember the book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah. So befriend the person, and then before you begin to deal with anything that needs to be dealt very seriously. But doesn't the Bible say that the gospel is always an offense to the unbeliever? Now, if we're talking about the gospel, that's something different. Okay. But I didn't get the impression the person No, no, they about, weren't. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, made yeah. that connection. No, the gospel must be presented, whether it offends or not, because we are mandated to carry the glad tidings, the good news. And uh, people, that's why we give out tracts, whether people like it or not. We're carrying the gospel. That's why we go on mission trips, because whether people like it or not, sometimes people tell us that the church is trying to destroy culture, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't try to win the pagan we shouldn't try you know everybody got we got a mandate from god to go into all the world so i wouldn't worry about that part of that part of it pastor a question from a listener is it okay for a christian to use an online dating app you know i i i, I don't know um i have if i have a settled opinion about that i can see the value if um they had a Christian internet service that would offer the opportunity for people just to meet each other and chat with each other. I can see the value of that. It's like I tell the people in our church, the pool in our church may be too small. Uh, they, they, you know, we got they don't have enough fish. Basically, people probably would understand the expression there. You got people in the church who been there for a long time. They're looking for a marital partner. They can't find any. There's no eligible men in the church. No eligible women in the church. It's not that they don't have people in the church, but they're just not the type of person that um, the person feels that this is God's will. What do you do then? You let them go out in the world and find an unsafe person? No, you widen the pool. That's why I tell people you go to conferences, you bring churches together, you have functions, let Christians meet other Christians. Then you've got the West Indian Baptist Fellowship that's held in January. We've got three or 400 Christians from all over the Caribbean Baptists. Attend that. Uh, you know, in other words, you're using wisdom. You're using your mind. You, you know, It's like, you know, I want a job, but I'm just going to stay home and God's going to give me a job. No, you, you write letters, you, you slam some tar, you visit some business places, you try to find an opportunity. You you want a partner, for example, uh, and uh, you ask God in prayer, God lead me to, to someone, and then you, you use your wisdom. Be a place where there can be good Christians that you can meet. So, um, 
I feel that sometimes with the, this dating avenue, if it's online and you can meet other Christians, get to meet other Christians, I have no problem with it whatsoever. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, we have two minutes left and just under two minutes left in the program. Any concluding thoughts or words of wisdom you'd like yeah. to share with those that are facing troubles? Well, I think that uh, one of the biggest things I uh, probably said tonight is that if your situation or your circumstances, if God doesn't see fit to change that, God wants to change you. In my judgment, I think that's a vital principle. And I think if we would take that perspective, here I am, I'm going through something. I've been praying, I've been asking God, I've, I've done the utmost to get this thing resolved, uh, to solve this problem, but still it is there. Then we should change the, rather than ask God to remove it, ask God, what does he want to change in me in respect to this matter? I think that's a profound truth. And I think if once appreciated and handled and looked at and uh, kept in mind, I think it's very helpful in helping us to face the, the problems that we are faced with in, as Christians. Pastor, I think all of us at some point find ourselves in a very heated discussion. Maybe we'll even define it as an argument. How do you de-escalate a situation like that? Well, uh, most people recommend what is called a, a timeout. A timeout. And what we mean by that is that here you are dealing with the matter, but because of anger and frustration or because of criticism or because you come to something happens, now you reach a point where you're at boiling point, you're almost virtually at the point where you want to yell at each other. Feelings have, have run high uh, and you need to cool down. Uh, I think you need to, first of all, recognize when you need a timeout. And you need a timeout when you begin to clench your fists, you begin to grind your teeth. When your face turns red and you begin to breathe very fast, it's time to say time out and uh, calm down. We'll talk about how we do that next time. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for another informative episode. Be sure you join us next week, the same time, same place, Tuesday evening on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse for another episode of That's Truth. We'll be continuing this very practical, relevant topic on the program. God bless you. Have a great night. Keep your radio dial tuned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, if you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.